Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7. Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7, and our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 31, concluding in verse 37. I now have this distinct privilege. So for us individually as Christians and as a gathered local church, the most important moment of our week, the most important event of the week is this moment when we gather to be addressed by God through the reading and proclamation of his word. So let there be hearts filled with anticipation. Let everyone present lean in as I have the privilege to read God's word, as I have the distinct privilege then to preach to you from God's word, let everyone be leaning forward and leaning in, filled with anticipation that God, the God who inspired this word, is eager to speak afresh through the reading and proclamation of his word. Let everyone be filled with anticipation that God is eager to draw near to us through the proclamation of his word. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In his book, The Cross from a Distance, Atonement in Mark's Gospel, Author Peter Bolt helps us to understand the uniqueness of the passage that we consider this morning and why Mark includes this story in his gospel. Mr. Bolt writes, Throughout Mark's gospel, a range of characters appear in the story, encounter Jesus, and then disappear again. From among these minor characters, a group of 13 can be separated out and labeled the suppliants. Mark pays greater attention to these suppliants, giving each of them a whole scene where their story is told. 
These are the ones who come to Jesus with a need for healing or exorcism, which Jesus meets. This group of 13 suppliants shows us a slice of life in the first century world. Despite their variety, together they illustrate a world in great need, a world under the shadow of death. And they also show that the Jewish religion was completely unable to help them in their need. In fact, it probably even made their situation worse by excluding them as unclean and so making God seem even further away. This morning, Mark introduces us to one of the 13, a minor character in Mark's gospel, a man in great need, a man that Jesus encounters while intentionally making his way through Gentile territory, a man that the Jewish religion was unable to help and would consider unclean for he was a Gentile, a man who no doubt felt God was far away and not concerned about his suffering. And that perception, or that perception was all about to change on this day as he unexpectedly encounters God himself, who he will discover is not far away, but instead has drawn near through the incarnation and would demonstrate his personal care for this man in the midst of his suffering. This, this man, this man could not possibly imagine what was going to take place on this day as he awakened this morning yet again to the sound of silence. Mark gives him a whole scene where his story is told. So this morning we're going to spend time with one of the minor characters in Mark's gospel. And though he will quickly disappear and we will soon forget him, we will not forget. We will not forget the Son of God who is the centerpiece of this story. So let's turn our attention to what Sinclair Ferguson describes as one of the most beautiful as well as perhaps one of the most unusual of all the miracles. And this beautiful, unusual miracle takes place surprisingly on Gentile soil. And Mark intentionally provides us with Jesus' travel itinerary. So notice in verse 31, he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. This is a journey into Gentile territory that actually began in verse 24 and immediately followed a major conflict he had with the Pharisees and the scribes beginning in chapter 7 verses 1 through 23. So the mention of Tyre and Sidon and the region of the Decapolis, it, it, it's making a point. Jesus is making a journey deep into Gentile territory, and the journey is filled with symbolism and significance. It is, in effect, a refutation of the Pharisees and the scribes and their understanding of the Gentiles as defiled and unclean, and it is a loud statement by Jesus of his inclusion of the Gentiles in his mission. Actually, this is a return visit to the region of the Decapolis and the reception that he experiences on his return visit to this region is actually quite the contrast with his experience in his initial visit. 
His first visit was a brief one. It's recorded in chapter 5. It was a brief one and it was a memorable one for on this journey he encountered the Gerasene demoniac, the man possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus was moved with compassion and he authoritatively cast out these demons and he delivered this man from the tormenting effect of these demons. And following this dramatic deliverance of this man, the people of that region who were familiar with this man, they observed this man they once feared. They observed him now clothed and in his right mind. And as they observed him clothed and in his right mind, they were frightened of Jesus rather than grateful for him. And Mark records that they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, which is without doubt one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Jesus responded to their request, and along with his disciples, he got into the boat to depart. And the man who had been possessed with demons assumed that he would be able to accompany Jesus, and he begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So it is certainly possible, if not probable, that this favorable reception by the crowds on Jesus' return visit was the fruit and effect of that once demonized man, now delivered man, who has been proclaiming how much the Lord has done for him since Jesus departed. It, it would appear that the first Gentile missionary is getting it done. For on Jesus' return visit, a crowd has gathered. And a request is made for healing. Verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf. He had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. This deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to Jesus by friends. Friends who quite obviously deeply cared for him. What, what a gift. Oh, what, what a gift their friendship was to him. They, they, they were true friends. They were doing life with him, not Facebook friends. And apart from their care, this would not have happened. And let me just say, I can't ponder this passage this morning without reflecting. In relation to this church, this church is filled with these kind of friends. And if you're new to this church, these are the kind of friends you're going to counter and make in this church. These kind of friends who brought this man to Jesus and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And then in verses 33 through 35, we, we have this most unusual manner of ministry by Jesus. So notice that Mark describes Jesus' manner of ministry in this miracle with, with really extraordinary vividness and attention to detail. There are six actions described here. One, he takes him aside from the crowd privately. Then he puts his fingers in his ears. After spitting, he touches the man's tongue. Jesus then looks up to heaven. He sighs. 
And then he says, be opened. Now, up to this point in Mark's gospel, there has been no demonstrative method of personal ministry by Jesus bearing any resemblance to what we read in chapter 7. So one must ask, why all this? Why all this? Because none of this is necessary for him to heal this man. In the previous account, the Syrophoenician woman comes and appeals on behalf of her daughter. Jesus heals, delivers the daughter simply with a word. So why all this? Why all this demonstrative behavior? Well, all of this was an expression of his care for this man. That's why all this. He does all this in order to communicate with a man who is deaf, in order to communicate with a man who is deaf in a language that this man could understand. It was, in effect, a form of sign language. Jesus enters this man's world of silence, and he graciously, and he personally, and he quietly, and he powerfully cares for him, and ultimately, he heals him. Note he begins by taking him aside from the crowd, verse 33, privately. He begins by separating this man from the crowd. He separates him from the crowd because he does not want this man distracted by the crowd. And he does not want this man to feel embarrassed in any way in front of the crowd because Jesus knows that this man is uncomfortable in the midst of this crowd. Helen Keller said, blindness separates people from things Deafness separates people from people. This is a man familiar with separation from people. He feels very awkward in social context. Understandably so. He can't hear. Not only is he unable to hear, he has a speech impediment. So imagine how awkward social contacts were for this man. This, this man's deafness has separated him from people. He is not comfortable with people. Jesus knows this and his care for him is personal. It's gentle. It's sensitive. And it's understanding. Jesus bears no resemblance to the modern day faith healer who specializes in exploiting people publicly. I know. This is a compelling illustration demonstration of Jesus' love for an individual. In Mark chapter 6, we read of Jesus that he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So in chapter 6, Mark draws our attention to Jesus' compassion for a great crowd. In Mark chapter 7, Mark draws our attention to Jesus' love for an individual. In his commentary, James Edwards writes, By himself, the needy man is simply another face in a crowd of Gentiles. But in removing him from the crowd, Jesus signifies that he's not simply a problem, but a unique individual. Yes, he was a unique individual that Jesus cares for and about. So he isolates him from the crowd so that he wouldn't be distracted by the crowd or uncomfortable in any way because of the crowd. And then, after isolating him, he prepares him for the miracle that he is about to perform. 
He speaks to him in a language this guy can understand. He acts out, in effect, for the man what he intends to do to him. He speaks to him by touching him. He puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, apparently on his hand, he touches his tongue. And though spitting on his hand certainly seems strange to us, and so there's no concerns, your pastors are not going to be adopting this approach in praying for you immediately after the meeting. The scholars, the smart guys who serve us so well with their commentaries inform us that at this time and in this culture, the use of spittle in healing is well documented. So this would not be strange to this man or in this setting or in this context. Wouldn't seem strange or unusual at all. What's going on? What's going down? Jesus is preparing him for the miracle he is about to perform in restoring his hearing and his speech. He is alerting him ahead of time to the miracle he is about to perform. And his touch is an expression of compassion. And it's a form of communication that this man can comprehend. He's preparing him for a miracle he was about to perform, a miracle only he could perform. Verse 34, next, he looks up to heaven and looking up to heaven. So he he glances heavenward and the purpose of glancing heavenward was to direct this man's attention to God alone. God alone who was able to do this for him. So Jesus wanted this guy to be clear. This wasn't magic. It, it was God who was going to heal him. So he looks heavenward, directs this man's attention heavenward. And then he sighs. I mean, I mean the unusual just, just, just seems to continue. And we certainly should give this at least a moment's attention. And, and here's why. Sinclair Ferguson helps us understand that the Gospel of Mark is very sparing in its description of Jesus' expressions of emotion. So the Gospel of Mark is sparing in its expressions, drawing our attention to descriptions of Jesus' expressions of emotion. So given that Mark is sparing, we would be wise then to give careful attention when he does draw our attention to any expression of emotion by Jesus. And this is most definitely an expression of emotion. He sighs. Why? Why in this moment, at this time, why, why is he sighing? Why, why would he sigh? He knows he is about to heal him. Why sigh prior to performing the miracle? I mean, why wouldn't... Jesus' expression of emotion be one of joy in anticipation of the healing that is about to take place and the celebration that would ensue as a result. Shouldn't Jesus be smiling rather than sighing? Why would he sigh? Well, it would appear that his sighing is the appropriate response of the Holy One when observing the effects of the fall and the ravages of sin on this man's life. That's, that's what's informing his sigh. He sighs because he grieves for those who are suffering because 
of the fall. He sighs because he is moved by this man's condition. He, he is not indifferent to this man's condition. He is affected by this man's condition. He sighs. He sighs because this man is a reminder of why he came and what he came to do in giving his life as a ransom for the sins of many. So he sighs, taking in firsthand, immediate observation of the effects of the fall and sin. He sighs. Mark is, Mark is hinting here at the cross, his impending death, the purpose for which he came. Finally, he speaks. Ephatha. Mark translates this for the non-Jewish readers. Be open. Brothers and sisters, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. <laughs> that is all it takes for him. Be opened. That's all it takes. The effect is instantaneous. He speaks to the organs of hearing and speech. And once again in Mark's gospel, his unique authority and power is on full display. Verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And what was that like? Don't you wonder? I mean, what, what was that like for this guy? What was that like for those who are present and observing? I mean, how did they respond? I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very grateful for the details that Mark has provided up to this point. But, but following this miracle, I, I'd prefer a few more details from Mark. Seems like Mark leaves us at this point and leaves us to our imaginations in relation to the scene following the miracle. Somewhat, somewhat. Because it's obvious that joyful pandemonium broke out when you read verse 36. Because Jesus charges them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So there's this wonderful, this, this is serious and this is, this is humorous. It's, it's very serious and it also has a humorous feel to it. Understandably, pandemonium breaks out. This guy can hear he can now speak, speech impediment, gone, not gradually, instantly, and completely. He is speaking, and he is speaking plainly. He arrived that day incapable of hearing. He arrived that day deaf. He arrived that day mute. He arrived that day with a speech impediment. Jesus of Nazareth said, be opened, and everything changes. So imagine you're one of his friends. Imagine you're a casual observer. And this guy turns from this private interaction with Jesus and he speaks plainly to you. Of course they were astonished. Pandemonium breaks out. And Jesus is immediately concerned. Why is he concerned? Like why in the midst of this is he charging them to tell no one? What, what's up with that? What's up with that? Why not tell everyone? Let word of this travel throughout the region all the way to Jerusalem. No, no, that's, he decidedly does not want that. Why? Oh, brothers and sisters, even in this charge here, we, we are to be alerted to the cross and we actually are to feel God's love. There is a reason he charged them to tell no one. 
it, in this time and because of his works, words, because of his miracles, there were messianic expectations in the air. And their messianic expectations were erroneous expectations for they were expectations that were political in nature and militaristic in nature. They were expectations of deliverance from Roman oppression. They were expectations of a restoration of Israel's greatness. They were not messianic expectations informed by Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant described there. Actually, that Messiah described in Isaiah 53 was incomprehensible to these folks. A Messiah hanging from a tree judged by God through crucifixion. That that was inconceivable in relation to the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will be triumphant. Jesus is aware of these messianic expectations. He does not want those expectations to be confirmed in any way or to spread because that is not why He has come. The hour for which He has come has not arrived yet. He does not want there to be any distraction from His mission. Therefore, He is not interested, not only is He not interested in miracles like this to be communicated, He charges them, don't tell anyone. So the shadow of the cross emerges from that charge. And when we read that, we should feel his love for sinners like you and me, for he is there for a purpose. He is making his way to the cross, and he does not want there to be any temptation or distraction in relation to that journey to a hill called Calvary. So he charges them not to tell anyone. But every time he charges them, (laughs) they are provoked. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So this scene is 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 a rich combination of the serious and the humorous. Jesus is there, and he is very seriously charging them, and they should obey him. But this is just incomprehensible to them that this man would be healed and they tell no one about it. I mean, think if you're the guy who was healed. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to respectfully take Jesus aside privately and say, how, how do you expect me not to tell anyone about this? When, when I get back to my village, they're going to notice, okay? They're, they're, they're going to notice. I can hear now, and I can speak, and I can speak plainly. I'm, 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 I'm going to be noticed. So what, what am I supposed to say? You did this. How can I thank you enough? I can hear. I can hear the voices of those I love. I can hear. And wonder of wonders, I can speak. Not tell anyone. So, with every charge, (laughs) the more zealously they proclaimed it. Just, Just try to imagine that scene. In effect, there's just no restraining this group. There's no restraining this group. There's no, <laughs> there's no restraining this man who was healed. I think we can assume that the celebration continued late into the evening. And there in the midst of it all, 
is our Savior, not wanting any notoriety, wanting to keep these miracles concealed because He has come to make His way to a hill called Calvary. And as this scene comes to a close, now there's two guys loose in the Decapolis telling how much the Lord has done for them and how He had mercy on them. And this, this entire account, this entire event, it, it's been unfolding and it's been building. It's been unfolding and building for the concluding verse. The concluding verse and the concluding confession. So everything that happened previous is for the purpose of drawing our attention to what happens in conclusion, what is expressed in this confession. Because the final verse, verse 37, final verse turns our attention away from the man who was healed and turns our attention solely to the centerpiece of the story and the centerpiece of Mark's gospel, the Son of God. So, so this verse, verse 37 this verse, the content of this verse, this is what matters most to Mark. This is what matters most to Mark because this miracle reveals the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And Mark is drawing our attention here to the messianic significance of this healing in particular. So this narrative concludes with a confession that draws attention to the messianic significance to the healing. William Lane in his commentary writes, the choral exclamation of the crowd verse 37, is the response of faith which recognizes in all the works of Jesus the promised intervention of God. That's what's going on here. That's what's going down here. That's what's being revealed here. The promised intervention of God. So notice there's two aspects to their confession. First, they proclaim, He has done all things well. He has done all things well. That, that's a summary confession, and it echoes the Old Testament. It recalls, does it not, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where we read, as God surveys His works at creation and declares that He saw everything He made, and behold, it was very good. So Jesus' miracle here demonstrates, and this confession in effect confirms, confirms that He is God the Son. That's what's going on here. He is God the Son. This is just another instance of Jesus doing what only God can do. Therefore, the confession identifies Him as God the Son. The confession identifies Him as the Son of God. So whether it's creation or redemption, He has done all things well. Secondly, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this confession echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah centuries before. Oh my. Centuries before Isaiah had prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will come and save you. He will come and save you then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So note, notice carefully here, in verse, in verse 32, Mark references this man's speech impediment. He uses the word mute. 
Other than in Isaiah 35 verse 6, that word is used nowhere else in Scripture. Just Isaiah 35 6 and here. Mark intentionally chose this word in describing this man's condition in order to connect this story to Isaiah 35. Mark is in effect drawing our attention to Isaiah's prophecy. Mark is saying to us as his readers this morning, your God has come and your God has come to save you. So Isaiah 35 celebrates the coming of God himself as the one who unstops the ears of the deaf and enables the tongue of the mute to not just speak, but to sing and to sing for joy. And that day in the Decapolis, those verses in Isaiah 35 were fulfilled. That prophecy was fulfilled for the Messiah had indeed come And part of the big-time surprise is that this is all going down in Gentile territory. Gentiles will be included in the Messianic blessing. And by the way, that is sweet news for Gentiles like you and me this morning. And finally, Mark notes, and they were astonished beyond measure. You think? (laughs) They were astonished. Oh, my. I love to just unhurriedly ponder these scenes. So few verses, so much grace. What a scene. They were astonished. Mark, how would you describe their astonishment? Beyond measure. It's not only these folks who should be astonished. No, no. If you're a Christian, you should be no less astonished. If you're a Christian, you should be no less astonished because each and every Christian should recognize their experience with Jesus in this story. Each and every Christian should recognize and remember. You should recognize and remember. You should be reminded by this story of when God, who seemed far away to you, drew near to you through the proclamation of the gospel. This this miracle points not not only to the the Messiah, this miracle also points to, to a more serious disability, spiritual deafness. And the healing of this spiritual disability is is much more significant and no less miraculous. So prior to our conversion, our condition is one of spiritual deafness. And we are humanly incapable of altering this condition. We, We are as hopeless as this deaf man prior to encountering Jesus. So if you are a Christian, it is because God has graciously opened your spiritual ears that were deaf because of sin, opened your spiritual ears through the proclamation of the gospel. If you are a Christian, it is because at some point in time, God personally, sovereignly, graciously called you by name out of a crowd and addressed you and said to your spiritual deafness, be opened. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the ephatha of God. And that 
should leave all of us staggering out of here this morning, astonished, just astonished that we can hear and that we can sing for joy as a result of what we've heard. And notice that the effect of spiritual ears being opened to the gospel is a loosened tongue. The the tongue of the mute, what do they do? The tongue of the mute sing for joy. Oh, listen, when Jesus opens someone's ears, he also frees up their tongue. He opens their ears and frees up their tongue. The tongue is freed up to celebrate the gift of grace they have received in the opening of their previously deaf ears. So all those whose ears have been opened, listen, if you're new, if you're a non-Christian, if you're here wondering, why do they sing so many songs? And why does the singing seem to go on endlessly, eternally in this place? Why? so much singing? Well, this is why. This is why. This is why we sing. And here's, here's our desire for you. We want you to join us. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, if you're a non-Christian here today, first of all, thank you for being here. We are so glad you are here. We do not think it is a coincidence you are here. We think it is God's kind providence you are here. And we are praying that he will say to your deaf ears this morning, be opened so that you can hear and perceive the glorious grace that is revealed through Christ and Him crucified. And when one's ears are opened, whether instantaneously in a dramatic and obvious way or gradually over a period of time, you will always, always, always observe the evidence of one's ears being opened through singing. Come on, think about prior to your conversion. Could you ever imagine being here today singing one song after another? No! No, any singing we did was normally in the context of, of, of a concert and, and there it was all about a sinful and shameful celebration, celebration of, of just all things self-centered and it was a means of self-exaltation. So that, that was our singing. If we were singing, we were singing ultimately to ourselves and about ourselves, celebrating our sin and doing so without shame. And then... He calls us out of the crowd, reveals the gospel to us, and we find ourselves in the setting of a local church, and he puts what? A new song in our mouths. Derek Kidner says, where God is, there is singing. That is exactly right. You study it throughout scripture. It will be true throughout eternity. Where God is, what's taking place? What's that sound I hear? Singing. What are these people doing singing? Oh my, they have a new song in their mouth and they don't tire of singing. And they love to sing over and over and over again and repeat the verses, repeat the chorus, and then sing another song and then back to the previous song. They just, why? Listen, when I think of myself in my pre-conversion state, a justified object of God's wrath because of my sin and my sinful and shameful devotion to the pleasures of sin and the pursuit of sin in every way. And then I fast forward to today and I'm standing there, my hands in the air, I'm singing with all my heart. And though I don't sing well or don't sing on key, I sing loudly and I don't mean to distract you, but I can't stop 
singing. Why? Because he said to me years ago, be opened. And I heard. I saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Since that time, I can't stop singing. And every time we sing, it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. It's what happens when the Messiah walks by. He leaves behind people once deaf who can now hear, once mute, now they can't stop singing. That's part of the joy of being a local church together is being able to gather each week and sing together. Our singing declares that by God's grace, our ears have been opened. So when God opens somebody's ears, you know what? He also says, and here's a new song to sing. And, and you really, as a Christian, your singing should, it should continue uninterrupted. So, so whether you're, you're in a season of prosperity or adversity, singing is always the appropriate response to the grace of God, always. So if you're in the midst of experiencing prosperity, well then, James writes, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. See, it's not sufficient just to be cheerful. You can think, yeah, I'm cheerful. I'm cheerful. Isn't that sufficient? No, no, no. Being cheerful isn't sufficient. Actually, you're vulnerable when you're cheerful because you're vulnerable to assuming self-sufficiency when you're cheerful. So what do you need to do when you're cheerful because you're prospering? You need to sing. Why do I need to sing? Because it's the appropriate response to the God who's given you the prosperity and made you cheerful. It's the appropriate acknowledgement. It's the appropriate response in humility. So yes, is anybody cheerful? Are you cheerful? Has it been a good week? Has it been a great week? Good, then you need to be singing. That's it, that's the appropriate, why? Because you want to assign, you want to respond humbly with gratefulness to the one who mysteriously blessed you this past week. You are blessed that he blessed you, aren't you? you are, and you should be a little perplexed. I mean, if you studied our lives carefully, for all of us have sinned in differing ways this week, what explanation is there for the blessing then? There's only one explanation. The grace of God revealed in the person and work of Christ. That should humble me. So actually prosperity should have a humbling effect on me for I am doing better than I deserve. Therefore, what's the appropriate response? Get to singing. Get to singing. Because that pleases and glorifies God. Okay, well, okay, CJ, I'm not prospering. It has been a difficult time. I am suffering. If you find yourself in a season of adversity and suffering, this is by no means to minimize the pain of your season of suffering and adversity. But even in the midst of adversity, God gives you the privilege of singing. And Mr. Spurgeon effectively describes the appropriateness of singing in the midst of suffering when he wrote this. Any man can sing when his cup is full of delights. The believer alone has songs when waters of a bitter cup are wrung out to him. Any sparrow can chirp in the daylight. It is only the nightingale that can sing in the dark. Children of God, whenever the enemies seem to prevail over you, whenever the serried ranks of the foe appear sure of victory, then begin to sing. Your victory will come with your song. It is a very puzzling thing to the devil to hear saints sing when he sets foot on them. He cannot make it out. The more he oppresses them, the more they rejoice. So let us resolve to be all the merrier when the enemy dreams that we are utterly routed. The more opposition, the more we will rejoice in the Lord. 
The more discouragement, the more confidence, the more singing. <laughs> so whether it's prosperity or adversity, deaf ears opened appropriately respond by singing. And finally, we, we really can join these folks. <laughs> we can join these folks. We can join them. Can we not? We can join them. This is, this is the most appropriate way for us to conclude in response to this. We can join them and say with them. We can add our voice to their voice and say to God today, He has done all things well in our lives. He has done all things well in our lives. That this is no less true of us. This, this reflects our experience of God and of His grace. And actually, I'm, I'm going to let J.C. Ryle finish this sermon. I'm going let, to let him emphasize this point. He wrote, Let us remember as we look back over the days past in our lives from the hour of our conversion, let us remember our Lord has done all things well. In first bringing us out of darkness into marvelous light, in humbling us and teaching us our weakness, guilt, and folly, in stripping us of our idols and choosing our portions, in placing us where we are. Listen, I'm saying if you're a part of this church, it's sweet where He has placed you. He has done all things well. And giving us what we have. How well, Ryle writes, everything has been done. How great the mercy that we have not had our own way. Oh, let, let us remember it as we look forward to the days yet to come. We, we, know not, we know not what they may bring, bright or dark, many or few. But we know, we know that we are in the hands of Him who does all things well. He will not err in any of His dealings with us. He will take away and give. He will afflict and bereave. He will move and he will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time in the right way. The great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes. We shall never see the full beauty of these words till resurrection morning. And we shall then look back over our lives. And we shall know the meaning of everything that happened from first to last. We shall remember all the way by which we were led and confess that all was well done. The why and the wherefore, the causes and the reasons of everything which now perplexes will be clear and plain as the sun at noonday. And we shall wonder. We shall wonder at our own past blindness and marvel that we could ever, that we could have ever doubted our Lord's love.